Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being so recorded. My name is Paul Leary and this is Job Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Richard Getting. Paul, it's a pleasure to be here talking to you, my friend. Thank you very much for coming on. And I, I give everybody the opportunity, but what is Richard all about and where did it all begin for you, sir? That's one hell of a question to start off with. Um, stop me if I uh, start boring you, Paul. Um, in a nutshell, I came from a family background that, perhaps on, in certain aspects was not massively supportive, um, felt very invisible as a child, sought, sought adventure, sought, sought probably the things I was missing at home in a career. So went into the Merchant Navy at a, a young age. Once I'd realized I was not particularly good at, at school where I was, didn't work out with the Merchant Navy because instead of seeing the world, I ended up seeing the west coast of Ireland in little tankers that were more like submarines, uh, more underwater than overwater, and two and a half years of seasickness, uh, I've decided this is maybe not for me. Um, in the same breath that I left the Merchant Navy, one door closes, another opens. I was at a at Cork airport, I think it was, waiting to, uh, to get off, leave my last ship. And uh, on, in a newspaper in, I think it was a Daily Mail, this would have been the late 80s, I saw a full-page advert for the Hong Kong police. thought, you know what, maybe that's my way of seeing a bit more of the world. If I go directly to Hong Kong, I'm certainly out in the middle of it. So I didn't really think I had a chance, uh, but probably my Merchant Navy career, career, it wasn't a career, it was two and a half years, my Merchant Navy uh, stint um, probably would have opened some doors it did interview at um, a couple of places, including the what was the embassy in London, uh, put me with a group of people and I started to then probably find my feet as a person thinking, uh, yeah, maybe I'm going in a direction which is actually going to suit me. Three years out in Hong Kong, they put me in the Marine Police because I'd just come out of the Merchant Navy. Didn't know anything about the Marine Police, but when I was asked, do you want to go on these fast patrol boats and do you want to skim around the outlying islands in fast patrol craft and all that. It wasn't much of an ask, really. I said, well, of, of course, absolutely. If I'm going to help you, of course, I'll go for that. So a few years of doing that. Then one regret in my life, which was, it's a contractual, or it was a contractual system in the Royal Hong Kong Police at the time. We did initial three-year contracts and then initial, I think, continuations of probably three or four years after that. I forget what. I was asked if I wanted to come back in. For some reason, I said no. Um, my heart was then set on being a cop back in the UK. Probably a mistake if I look back. I should have stayed in the Hong Kong police longer like some of my mates uh, did and had fantastic careers out there. Some stay in 20, 30 years. Um, so came back to the UK, uh, joined South Yorkshire Police. Because of the person I was, um, with the issues I brought with me probably from my family days, which never really left me, uh, I sought roles within the police that were, were violent, that were confrontational. I sought situations where I was risking, if you like, my personal safety. Um, I, I was probably addicted, probably not too strong a word, I was probably addicted to the danger, to the unknown certainty, to the violence. In a, in a strange degree, uh, probably felt like I was purging myself when I got assaulted, which was regular. Uh, in the roles that I was in, uh, in the drugs unit, um, executing search warrants at silly o'clock in the morning, uh, addresses where people did have things they didn't want us to find, so they were as violent and as awkward and as confrontational as they could be because they knew if, the, uh, if we won that particular incident, then they knew they were going to prison for a long time. So every, every door was another scuffle, more violence. Um, Things happened in one of those incidents, unfortunately, it's probably inevitable. Um, somebody died in one of those incidents. Oh, wow. Um, guilt then, um, trauma, guilt, 
and waves of many other negative feelings then obviously took over me. Um, what happened, it happened. I was, I was um, suspend, not suspended. I was um, subject to a coroner's inquest that took about 12 months to resolve itself. Um, eventually it did. Eventually I was acquitted of any wrongdoing. Took about 12 months for that to happen. Uh, and by that time, my life was in total turmoil. Um, I'd gone right to the edge of my envelope with my mental health. Um, come very close to literally not being here at all. And post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, had been probably not diagnosed officially by that time, but it, it was definitely there. It had become a guest of mine, sort of hovering on one of my shoulders and everything I did and everything I said. Um, so that forced me to leave the police. Uh, I was in no fit state to do anything, especially not be a police officer at times. So the, the guilt just totally took over um, because of what had happened. So the, the police weren't particularly, what shall we say, they weren't particularly conducive or helpful or aware of PTSD at that time. And we're not, it's not that long ago, it was 11, 12 years ago, perhaps. Uh, but thankfully, um, I managed to, out of my own searching, find the organization Combat Stress, uh, which is a military organization. Yep. They specialize in the treatment support of those primarily from the veteran and military communities living with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I, I rang them um, in a, in a pretty, pretty bad way, actually, um, obviously having quite come quite close quite to the end of, of, of ending things. And the conversation with the gentleman that spoke to me, to me that day um, was really, really positive. Started to make me feel as if I wasn't so much of an alien on an alien planet, you know, with the things I was go experiencing, the, the, thick, the voices I was hearing um, and the other destructive symptoms that were going through me. They invited me through to one of their respite centres, Orderly Court in Shropshire, um, which is now closed, unfortunately, due to budget restraints. Went through there, and from the moment my, my police rep drove me through to Shropshire, and from the moment we drove into the car park, there was almost an air of peace. And it, something sort of took over me, really, from being around that place, the, the, the fantastic lads in lasses, the veterans who were there, uh, from the moment I walked in, a couple of veterans shook my hand, one of whom is still a really good friend of mine, actually, in the organization that I founded shortly after, the Parian Foundation. Uh, that lad, Mark, he was called, shook my hand, made a particularly crass, rude joke, and brought the brought the humor level in and brought the banter, banter up. Started to make me feel, do you know what, this actually might be good for me. And then I did two, th sorry, three stays to Audley Court over a three-year period, residential stays. Uh, and each time slowly put me back together a bit more and a bit more and started to become not the old person, but a new person, actually, um, a much better person. You know, the aggression, the the seeking of all this, this stupid um, danger in violence and all that, that had gone by this point, and I was starting to probably become a much better person. Um, most of the healing actually came significantly from the lads and lasses, the veterans that I met at Audley Court, so many of whom are still really good friends of mine now, some 10, 11, 12 years later. And it became transparent to me and to the others when we used to chat in the, the, the fantastic little gym they had at silly o'clock in the morning. We'd often find a few of us in the gym there because they never locked it because they knew the power of these things. So we'd find ourselves doing some weights, listening to some, some music at two, three silly o'clock in the morning. And and we we put each other back together. Actually, they helped me. I helped them. We we normalised each other's thoughts and feelings and voices because we all had very similar stuff. Although it was different stimuli that caused it. Mine was from an incident in the UK. Theirs obviously was was from stuff in Afghan, stuff from Iraq. Even going back to the Falklands, there were some Falklands lads and lasses down there. Again, wow. really good friends of mine now. But, but the lived experience, the trauma journey was very, very similar between all of us. So we, we sort of normalized each other. We normalized our behavior. That, that allowed us as a group to accept what we were doing and who we were at this time. 
And from that, we sort of then collectively enabled each other to manage what was going on in our lives. Um, so this was so powerful. But at the time, when when we as a collective or me as an individual went to the professionals, perhaps in combat stress to say, look, what's happening with us? It's silly o'clock in the morning, playing pool or in the gym or just chatting, having some banter, just talking crap with each other. There's a real power in this, but it was sort of glossed over by by the professionals at the time. Yes, yes, that's really, really good. But are you keeping up with your CBT? Are you keeping up with your EMDR? You know, are you keeping up with your group work and all that? Yes, yes, of course, to all those. But, you know, there's a real power that I think you're missing in the other stuff that's happening when you're not there, when the white coats are not there. There's this This peer support is really, really powerful. There's something in this. And if you can bottle it, there might be more help we can give to more people. And it was sort of glossed over and ignored by many of the professionals at that time. And that frustrated me. It frustrated us as a collective. Um, and we were sort of marginalized and ignored as a community. I could see that. They could see that. We could see it together. Uh, so we decided, you know what, if they're not going to listen to us, we'll form together as a collective like a trade union almost uh, to champion to gatekeep community this community and yeah. when i say this community at that time it was the the blue light mainly cop and the veteran ptsd uh, lived experience world those lads and lasses from both communities that lived with the demons in the darkness you know the stuff that kept you up at two three silly o'clock in the morning the stuff that took you right to the edge on a regular basis the guilt, the the self disgust, and and the the suitcase of other stuff that comes with that, you know, like a, like a suitcase of gremlins that every so often explodes and they all go running in all different directions, uh, and, and and if you're not careful, it can totally melt melt what's inside your head. Absolutely. So, so we we formed the Deparian Foundation. Um, not really knowing what it could be or where it could go. It was just an idea and it probably gave us a sense of satisfaction. We were doing something at the time. And then we realized, well, if we're going to make anything of this, it's going to be a, a hard struggle. B, also, we've got to engage with academia because the only evidence, the only proof that people in power, politicians, those that give funding, um, the only proof they seem to accept is that that comes from academia. So. If we're going to do anything of this, we're going to have to enter this terrifying world of academia. So that became a goal then. Um, and I never wanted to be an academic. I, you know, it's still a very painful journey for me now uh, because it's not the easiest of things. I, 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 was, I was not born to be an academic. I was born probably to do the other stuff I used to do in the police probably more. But it was a means to an end, and we had to engage with those people who could then give us that academic proof that we could go and knock on the doors to have the conversations we needed to do to, to make life different, better for the, the brothers and sisters who were living that journey that we were living, those that were going to follow on behind us. Because me, they, us as a community, we, and I'm talking again from Blue Light and Veteran, uh, we lose so many brothers and sisters through suicide. Oh, yeah. Still, it's happening. It's uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a it's it's a pandemic in itself, if you like. It's a it's something that's always there. But but and I say but in a positive way, there is stuff that can be done to to save many of those brothers and sisters through through research through gathering lived experience of those people such as myself that that live that journey to to isolate the ingredients of what causes us to live this lifestyle what causes us to go right to the edge um, such as loneliness such as isolation such as guilt such as self-disgust and, and many other things as well and if you start to isolate some of those ingredients let me take the isolation part of it the loneliness part of it there's, there's things that can be done to improve that, things that actually aren't that uh, complicated, you know, such as what we were doing. It, it orderly caught combat stress at two, three o'clock in the morning by having banter, by playing pool, by by talking to each other on the basis that I see you, you see me. Um, we're already starting to target that particular strain of loneliness within your symptoms. And 
and it's not loneliness isn't really the right word because it's like it's a it's a painful tangible physical presence inside your head that and I, I liken mine, my particular one to wearing a diver's helmet. And although I've never worn a diver's helmet, I imagine it's similar because you can have all your support bubble around you, your loved ones, your family, your muckers, your mates. You know, you can be down the pub and having the best banter, you know, with your wife, your partner, your husband, whoever. But because that diver's helmet is on your head, you just can't communicate with them. So it's even more painful because yeah. they're right there, but you can't communicate. And it's a tangible pain, this. And I've experienced it, and I still sometimes do, and it, it comes over you like a wave. But by isolating and identifying this, you can then start to put measures in place for as in when it crops up, you know, coping mechanisms, safety plans, whatever you want to call them. And just by identifying it and bringing the elephant from the corner of the room, from the shadows into the room, and calling it something, even befriending it, if you like, things like this, we can start to mitigate and start to reduce and start to have measures to accommodate and to live with. So uh, that became an entity going into research. Um, I find I find myself probably doing what maybe I'd regretted many years before, which was uh, never going to university because I never had the chance because I never had any A-levels that were good enough to do it. So I find myself on some courses at Sheffield Hallam University who I've got to say from the moment I contacted him in, in that first instance were very, very helpful, very, very supportive. I met some amazing tutors because I had to do what they call a foundation course first. Yeah. So in effect, I went back to school. I went to an engineering college in Sheffield, part of the Hallam complex, um, did um, some GCSE, O-level, whatever you, whatever it was at that time, maths, engineering, a whole manner of subjects You know, that was all new to me. Uh, and they got me through it, to be fair, the tutors and stuff there and some of the lads and lasses I was with. You know, I was I was old enough to be their dad, their granddad. You know, yeah. I was with 18, 19 year olds. But it, we had a laugh, actually. Uh, and they got me through it. That got me onto a degree course. Uh, and again, a fantastic group of um, people tutoring me and helping me. And it was a maths course as well, because the only A level I had of any worth was a maths degree. So with a maths A level. So. Uh, it was a maths teaching degree that I went on to. Uh, I quickly realized I was never going to become a teacher because I had zero patience. And um, yeah, any classes that I led would have been chaotic at best. <laughs> they'd probably been funny, but I don't think they'd have learned much maths, bless them. So it was quickly decided by me and the people administering the course that, no, you're not going to make a maths teacher. Oh, funny. Uh, so that was fine, but it was a means to an end anyway. Obviously, I, it, it was always really just an engagement process to get some some wool on my back, if you like, some credibility, yep. so I could then pursue and keep on with the engaging with the academic academic world about what we're about, the PTSD uh, within our communities. And it was a badge of honour, if like a badge to get me through the doors of these professors and these academics who would maybe more be likely to listen to me, having come from a semi-academic background. Um, so, so I passed that. Again, I don't know how, but I did. I managed to get past my maths degree. Uh, I think with a large amount of support and sympathy and empathy from a lot of my uh, course tutors, to be honest. But hey-ho, I've got a certificate that says I've got a maths degree, which is fantastic. Um, people that knew me at school in my background would have would would fall over if they hear this to realise Rich Gettins has got a maths degree. <laughs> uh, but then... But then I forced it even one step further, and thanks to Hallam University, I ended up getting a master's as well. So uh, in the master's, now we, we were moving more in the direction of what we needed with our community. It was a psychology master's. So so now we were starting to go in a direction that actually meant something, if you like. So uh, the psychology master's, again, I've got to say, I think people helped me through it because that was terrifying oh, and it was, it was so difficult. It was like meltdown time in my head. Uh, but... Yeah, it, 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 it's it's there. It's a qualification, and so so here we are now with qualifications, with with invites into academia, and talking to people within academia about post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and by this time, we had a community built around me of veterans, mostly a few cops, mostly veterans, mostly from my combat stress, my orderly court days, uh, a group of people who. 10 years ago said to me, if you ever get to the point of actually doing some research, I am on your list. So first thing, 
me ringing up these people saying, you remember that chat we had 10 years ago, whatever, well, it's happening now, We're doing some research. Are you as good as you promise? And they all, to a man, to a woman, uh, they all said yes. So we had a community, which was quite rare from, as you can imagine, within the trauma background of veterans with severe, mostly CPTSD, all of whom were saying, I want to be a part of this. I want to get my voice out there. I want to be a part of research you're going to do. And let's work together to raise awareness. So uh, I think it was within my master's, actually. We'd already put together this community. It was my master's. I'm jogging my memory. Because those veterans uh, populated a study I did as part of my master's. We did it about PTSD loneliness. You know, the loneliness I told you about, Paul, that isolates you and takes you very much on the suicide journey. Um, and, and I think it was quite unusual at that time for somebody to come with a cohort, a population, for a study, for a master's, a load of veterans, me saying they are going to participate in my study. This is what we're going to do. It worked. It was really well received. And on the back of that, the university published a paper. I was named on it um, relating to what we'd just done. That was well received. Uh, and stuff from that led us to Northumbrian University. Uh, up at Northumbria, they've got what they call, let me get this right, the, the Northern Hub for Veteran and Military Families Research. That's right. All acronyms. It's all long names yeah. in academia. Wow. Um, and I, I took a couple of ideas up to them. Those ideas we worked on, myself and others, for 12 months voluntarily. Uh, and then we had two research concepts that were submitted to the Armed Forces Covenant for research bids, both were approved. Uh, my specific uh, passion, the PTSD loneliness, was developed even further uh, with a similar cohort of veterans. Uh, and the other idea developed fantastically well with the help of many others and a community um, related to military and veteran suicide from the perspective of those who were bereaved, which is, it was an absolute privilege of mine to be working alongside the families and some inspirational people for a few years on that study as well, mm. sort of in parallel to my PTSD loneliness study, uh, both centered within the communities, both centered within the people actually living it, uh, and just where it needs to be, you know, academia listening to those who've got the lived experience finally and taking heed and note of those people. Um, so those studies carried on for two years, funded, I became a research assistant so I became an employee, I became a, an academic, which was absolutely terrifying, uh, being around professors and academics who, again, had a whole new language, all spoke in a whole new way. Uh, and it was very much a, a steep learning curve for me. I probably did and said some things which probably rubbed up other people the wrong way uh, because I I had to temper my my attitudes, my patience and all those things. So lots of things. I didn't do probably the best way I could have done over those years with Northumbria um, because I was a, f a fish out of water very much, but there for a specific reason, trying to help our communities and develop these two projects to be the best they could be. So uh, the reports for both are just about on the verge of being published by Northumbria University and by the Armed Forces Covenant. So I'm, I'm so proud. I've been like a kid at Chris on Christmas Eve for a few months waiting for those reports to come out, feeling so proud that I'm, I'm a part of that process That's in brilliant. my community. The veterans are a part of that process. So we await them to be published anytime, hopefully. And then the, the, the latest opportunity came probably on the back of that right place, right time. Um, I saw an advert, and again, I apologize for the long names. Um, it, it's called the, let me get this right, I even have to think about it myself, the Health Determinants Research Collaboration it's centered in Doncaster with Doncaster Council. And it's a collaborative uh, research study, open-ended, I think initially five years, but it's going to be open-ended, uh, funded by central government. And I've become what we call now an embedded researcher. So I'm even deeper into academia. Uh, again, terrifying. Again, a whole new language and a whole group of colleagues who are so academically professional and brilliant at what they do. And I'm sort of the the odd one out, really, bringing just totally lived experience to it. But but we're 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 melding it, uh, molding it all together. Um, and the focus of what we're doing at Doncaster, it's it's twofold, really. We're we're, we're increasing capacity for the council, 
to make them more research aware. Um, and, and I'll come on to the veteran concept, the element of that in a moment. Uh, so it's to it's to to tell everybody that they're a researcher, if you like, that every every contact between anybody in the council and any member of the public uh, is a research opportunity. You know, ask those questions. How can we help you? Make put the community at the heart of the dialogue again, similar yep. to the veteran work that I was coming from. But then also, which is my passion, which is using the learning from the veteran PTSD community being isolated, marginalized, the stigma that, that we I still live with on a daily basis, using all the learning that's come from all this uh, to to improve other communities in not, not just the Doncaster area nationally as well. This is about engaging for me with any community that feels ignored in uh, invisible in ostracized and stigmatized, including the veteran community, because that's still there including the COP community, especially the mental health part of it, especially with what's been going on in the media recently. You know, the police police community is very much stigmatised now, yeah, especially by the absolutely. media. Uh, so it's about helping, for me, all communities that have that lived experience, and we share it with each other, and we can help each other. So how do you, how do you go on about getting people into your community then? How do you get the message out and bring them into the foundation? That's, that's a very good question. It's, 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 initially, it probably had to be done physically, but now it's happening organically because, like talking to you now, Paul, um, and I was with a lovely group of, of people from one of the communities earlier on today in Doncaster. I've been invited to conferences and various events now, not just in Doncaster, but nationally. And conversations now happen organically. You know, who are you? Well, I'm doing this and no, I'm doing that. And, and, and I'm, I'm finding that I'm gravitating like a magnet with the right people now discussing the right things, uh, dis discussing this common trauma journey and the way I try and talk about it does seem to have a language that translates to people from all communities who share that. And it brings elements of their journeys out. And before we know it, we look at we're planning collaborations together and supporting each other in let stuff that we know as a community can help you we can then learn from your community back with ours and let's let's be a community of communities if you like mm. if 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 you share a trauma journey if you live with ptsd or, or or many of the other myriad of mental health disorders we share more than we don't share and we can work together and when we work together as a community of communities we're very hard to ignore you know, and what affects one of our communities affects us all, if you like. We become a brother and a sisterhood. And then the politicians in the fund holders, those that still don't really like to listen to us who, who have a lived experience, they find it very hard when when we're all clubbing together and we're all supporting each other. And and that is starting to happen. So, so in answer to your question, a long way around, Paul, people are sort of seeking us out now. Good from all communities and it's becoming not just a veteran or cop thing now it's becoming more of an inclusive community relating to trauma and ptsd now do you think that we are more aware in society around mental health and ptsd because it wasn't when we were kids we we're probably a similar age i might be a bit older than you sir <laughs> but but um as as kids that wasn't something that was ever spoken about and in fact when i first joined the police in 86, 87, that definitely wasn't something that, that was talked about. No, we, we definitely have come significantly down the road in the right direction. Uh, when what happened to me happened in, where are we now, 2023, so it was 12, 12, 13 years ago that I had my major meltdown that caused me to say and do things that led to me leaving South Yorkshire Police. I was very much the wrong there because I just literally had a, a mental and physical meltdown one day, um, totally against character. But at that time, PTSD wasn't spoken about. It wasn't known about. It was, yes, it was a thing. Um, but no, it was, it was in the darkness. It was in the, the disbelieved cupboard, if you like, by, yeah. by society, by organizations. It was in the, it was in the bracket of a bad back type thing. It was, just an easy way for people to get a sickie and get a pension. Um, and, and I was probably one of the first people that, that exhibited the things I did 10, 11, 12 years ago in South Yorkshire Police. And it probably opened a lot of people's minds. And I think initially 
a lot of people I worked with and my bosses, etc., were very skeptical probably with my own behavior, actually, yeah. and probably thought I was one of those people with the new bad back, if you like. But I'd like to think the last 10, 11, 12 years, you know, in my journey, hopefully now they realize that it wasn't play acting. It was actually a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, but we have come significantly down the right direction. Uh, but, but PTSD historically was, has only become a thing because I've done some research and I try and present about it a bit, only became a thing in 1980 in America, right. thanks to the American Psychiatric Association, um, because of all the vets coming back from Vietnam yep. in, in the, the mid to late 70s. They had a massive influx of men and women living, exhibiting with very similar symptoms. So money was invested. A lot of effort went in in America in those years to say, what is this that epidemic we're suddenly suffering? Uh, and then obviously there was clusters of behaviors that were grouped together. Uh, the things that generally us men and women living with PTSD do. Uh, and then the name was the label, if you like, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was given in 1980. Albeit, it's if, if you go back in history, you can see that there's accounts of PTSD or what we now know to be PTSD in Roman, Greek, literature right. going back thousands of years it's it's written into shakespeare some of shakespeare's book henry v you talk about behaviors that he writes about and it's it's straight up ptsd you know and, and there's other accounts you know going back uh, hundreds thousands of years where you, you identify it now and you can see those are the experiences uh, of somebody like me who had a meltdown because of my police related activities or a lad or a lass coming back from Afghan or Iraq or the Falklands or, or so many other uh, backgrounds of, of combat as well. So it's been around as long as the first men and women fought each other and had traumatic experiences. But, but yeah, it's, it, it's now a thing. It's a label. And, and now steadily but surely, I see, I see academia embracing it. I see government embracing it. I see the Office of Veterans Affairs, you know, it's, it's a thing now that the link between PTSD and suicide, it's fairly well established now. You know, you won't find many people that dismiss it now. We know it's a major motorway towards suicide. Other things are as well, of course, but, but post-traumatic stress disorder seems to accelerate the suicidality so much quicker than many other things. Yeah. It gets you on that roller coaster. It straps you in, and, and if you're not, supported before a certain moment you've you've almost gone past the point of no return you you sort of drift into becoming another person a zombie almost and in, in with one destination which is unfortunately what, what we know can happen so um yes things are improving a lot more to be done so much more to be done specifically around suicides uh, suicides within the veteran community suicides within the blue light community but also many other of our invisible, stigmatized and marginalized communities also have significant suicide yeah. problems that are just happening and go unnoticed um, by government, by councils, by, by, by society in general. So it's there if we peel back the cover in most societies and communities. Uh, but we just need to be more aware and cognizant of it. But it's the largest single killer of men under the age of 40, I think I'm right in saying, suicide. Absolutely. And, and it's something that we've all experienced, certainly in the police. I mean, I would attend, as, a, as an inspector, I would attend a suicide, well, at least at least one a week, and it was always yeah. invariably a young young male. If I take you back, and if you, if you don't want to talk about this, I quite understand... But if I take you back to that fateful day, what sort of duty were you engaged in? It was, I, I've not mentioned too many specifics about no, no. it, but it was a, a drug-related raid. Um, it was the sort of thing that happened with our unit day in, day out. Um, so every, every confrontation ended up in, in violence because of the nature of what we were looking for and the consequences, what would happen to people if they were found in possession of those things. So every door that went in, and we're looking at the, let me think, the early to mid-90s at the time, it was not as re well, well regulated as it is now. So they were, the, the pro processes and protocols are much better now mm. with who does what, etc. But then it was very much of smash the door down, run in and see who's there and find out what, what's in the what's in the location. <coughs> um, 
So those things happen on a regular basis. And a, an incident happened, uh, a violent incident, which led to one person, sadly, losing his life um, with me integrally involved in that. Right. So it was it's probably inevitable. Um, and yes, it was a combination of a toxic cocktail of so many things that went wrong that could be put better, could be done better in the future. But but in that nature of those interactions, um, it was probably an inevitable consequence at some point in time. Um, so I was enveloped in guilt. Uh, I still am. I mean, many Many years later, I, I'm, I still live with a significant amount of guilt about that moment. And although although my memory is very, very poor, even five minutes before this, this chat started, I'd struggle to remember possibly, Paul, what I was doing. Right. But that that day, or specifically that 20 minutes when this thing happened, um, I can probably lay out for you second to second almost yeah. with with the related smells and sounds and experiences, what I was wearing, everything I can I can relay verbatim almost. So that's that sort of stamped time stamped in my memory um, with the guilt and the the self disgust and all the other things. But but the, but the thing is that you've gone through so much trauma yourself as a direct result of what has actually happened there. But what level of support did you get from? the police from the federation from the other people around you when this had all taken place because again my experience has been that there's an isolation around that because all of a sudden you become persona non grata oh bless you um that that moment and this is this is another memory that i that is i i, I it's that tangible i could cut it like a cake uh, was that day when this thing happened, when unfortunately it was obvious that this unfortunate uh, person had passed away, uh, this, it was it was a crime scene potentially. Obviously, it was dealt with as such. No issues with that. But we were in the scene and we were kept in the location for quite a few hours. We weren't allowed to leave, even myself and my colleagues. I think bosses didn't really know what to do because it had never happened before. Thankfully, this sort of thing happens very very rarely. Mm. Um, so we were we were actually kept in the location for many hours until the bosses could work out what they were supposed to do with us. Then we were ferried back to the local police station. Uh, we were kept apart. Uh, and I remember words a senior officer told me, he said, basically, don't worry, Richard, but if the post-mortem goes the wrong way, you're looking at manslaughter. Um, and that was one of the first things I actually had heard that day when my, main, my mind had switched into what the, what's happening here. Um, and I remember those words distinctly. And obviously, as you can imagine, then that the rest of that day was just a blur um, because I'm thinking, what's going to happen to me here? Uh, manslaughter is being mentioned in. Wow. Uh, so the 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 isolation, the um, sent to Coventry, if you like, started to happen quite organically, I think, from that moment when when that word had been mentioned. I think everybody else wanted to keep me at arm's length because I was like a Jonah suddenly. Yeah. Um, so relationships that had been amazing, suddenly I was like I was invisible. Uh, a few friends stuck with me who I do remember and I do acknowledge when I speak to them, but most people, it's just like, like I wasn't there anymore. I was invisible, to be honest. Um, it got prominence in the national news, the incident that evening on TV. It was all over national TV. It was all over mainstream newspapers uh, because of what had happened. Um, so it wasn't a particularly easy time. Um, it took a year, I think, almost to the day for the, the coroner to, to resolve it officially. And the coroner came out with some very supportive words about a year later. And um, by that time, uh, an independent inquiry had concluded the same, but I think they were waiting to hear what the coroner said. As soon as the coroner said um, what he needed to say, then the independent inquiry that had been taken a year to progress suddenly concluded the same. Um, so suddenly um, I was not let off the hook because everything was still going around in my mind a million miles an hour anyway. So uh, if anybody else said that I was... Um, not acquitted, but anybody else let me off the hook, so to speak. I wasn't letting myself off the hook. 
and probably to be fair it's it's always there i don't think i'll ever actually let myself off the hook for that uh, the guilt will always be there no matter what people tell me it, it, that's an impossible thing to resolve for me now because because of what happened um so Yes, very much so. Isolated, sent to Coventry uh, from colleagues that I never thought would treat me like that. Um, and it took me down a, in a whole different avenue, uh, just tur turns everything upside down. Uh, that was that was the death knoll of my, my marriage at the time as well. Things happened to us at that address we were living. Uh, press came calling. I think there was a uh, not a flood of reporters, but we had a few cameramen and reporters around the house suddenly found out where I lived, etc. Um, so we had all that, wanting to to get some juicy stories, speaking to the neighbours, etc. That lasted until something else happened later that week, I seem to remember. Something bigger happened and they all suddenly left. Uh, but for a few days we had to live with that, shut behind curtains, not being able to go anywhere. Even my children, you know, what, why is there people wanting to talk to him while I'm working, walking to school, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it wasn't a pleasant time. And I think probably the nails were in the coffin with, with that marriage because this finished it off again. Um, and I'd probably by that time become a particularly unpleasant person with everything that was going through my head. Um, I remember one of my children having a chat with me many, many years later, talking about that period in my life where they would hear the, the the car reversing onto the drive. They'd hear keys in the door, dad's home. Uh, and they basically would all vacate the living room and all run upstairs and switch the lights off, pretending to be asleep, you know, because nobody really wanted to be confronted by the mood I'd be in that day or that night. Uh, so that's how it had become. And I was ob oblivious to that. I'd, I was probably just walking around with a big dark cloud over my head. It was affecting everybody around me, my family, my my wife. Um, so, so the, I mean, this is this is an important of what part of what we're doing with the Parian Foundation and the research. Actually, it's trying to to raise awareness of the effect upon the families, the effect upon oh. the children, the effect upon the support circles around a lad or a lass with PTSD and severe mental health. It's it's the families who really need acknowledgement and support through secondary trauma, through living around the experiences and the behaviour of that lad or that lass. Um, and and this, this has become something that's being acknowledged more in the veteran community, thankfully. I don't think it's acknowledged enough within the blue light community yet, the effect upon uh, what happens to you know their loved one when he or she's at work and the things that they see and do on a daily basis and how that will then affect the, affect the family at home. I don't think enough credence is given to that in the police blue light world yet. Um, and, and as for civilian life, there's there's so much work to be done with the family side of of trauma and suicide and PTSD. Is there a collective of of foundations? Because you've got there's, there's great people like yourself that do so much for um, blue light PTSD sufferers, veteran sufferers. But there's quite a few of you. I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but there's quite yeah. a is there a, a a collective, or do you, you know, do you work together in order to get the best practice and and share share your brilliant ideas? It's, again, that's a really good question because, especially where you have funding, and obviously funding, and you've got charities, you've got CICs, you've got all manner of different organisations that have set up. Now you've got individuals as well, and where you have funding, you then have competition. You then have unregulated uh, ambulance chasing, if you like, and you have duplication of effort. Yes. Uh, organizations doing the same thing next to each other in, in adjoining areas, competing with each other for for patronage, for people to be part of them. Uh, and, and, and this defeats the cause with a lot of us because there needs to be some sort of central collation, some sort of, I don't know how you do it, databases or... Uh, effort to work together and push in the same direction. So, you know, we eliminate competition between ourselves because by competing with each other, we're then not helping those who we're here to help, which is the community, yeah. the lads or the lasses with their issues, their trauma, their PTSD, their mental health, and all the other family issues that they might have at home as well. So there needs to be, and that's your question, more collation of resources, more joined up thinking, 
Um, I'm seeing things a little bit better, perhaps, but still not enough. Um, it's perhaps more coordinated, or I say perhaps there's there's certain large organisations in the military and veteran world that that take a lead, take a steer. Um, but but you also find that I'm using the veteran community as, as an example again because I probably know more about that right now than the blue light world is that there's still issues with the allocation of funding because a lot of the grassroots organisations, those actually at the coalface, doing the real work, helping the, the brother or the sister at two, three o'clock in the morning when they're in, in chaos, when they're in need, those groups that are doing that hands-on work often are the last ones to be funded and to, to get any real support. And a lot of those groups, and I, I I'm work, work, know them as friends now, a lot of that comes from self-funding, comes out of them putting their own hands in their own pockets yep. uh, and not caring about that because they're doing it for the community. Fantastic. But but further up the the food chain, some of the larger organizations are not filtering that down to the men and women, the organizations who are doing this, this necessary immediate emergency work at the ground level. So there needs to be more correct allocation of the resources to where they need to go. Uh, perhaps some of the organizations have become too top heavy uh, and have become businesses, which is which is not good because when you have businesses, and I'll not mention names because that would be cruel, but w when organizations get too big and they employ too many managers, too many streams of people doing this, that and the other, then obviously funding can, if it's not managed effectively, can go to, to those directions. And then by, by virtue, it doesn't go to the lads and lasses who are doing the work at the cutting edge. So th there's much more work that needs to be done with that. Uh, I can't comment about the police mental health structures because that's, that's a nut I've not really cracked yet. But there are some fantastic organizations doing some brilliant work. Um, probably the funding issue will be the same. Uh, you you may be able to comment on that better than me, Paul, yourself. But well, I, I think from an onlooker, um, I, I see that all the great charities and all the great work. I mean, you only have to watch the the marathon, and everybody's got you. You could you can put them in. They're in the same race basically, and they're all aiming for the same finish line. And there's some great people out there within the police. I think my my biggest concern is sometimes the preventative. It's, a, it's policing in itself. Prevention comes before detection or cure. And I wonder what the police put into place around the prevention element of mental health and PTSD. Because sometimes you can alleviate a lot of pressure on those people that are affected by preventing it in the first place. We've all seen it where... We know what we argue about as adults. We know what gets us down as adults. You know, it's sex, kids, money. Not always in that order. Um, too much, not enough, on all, on all counts. Yeah. But the impact on the regular police officer now is quite overwhelming because their wages haven't kept up with, with society, with life, what's going on. And then they're expected to travel that much further. So I don't know what it's like in, in your area, but we've closed police stations. And if you want to be a cop, you have to travel an awful long way to get there. So you're adding more pressure onto them. Um, the hours, well, the hours have always been there. And, I'm, you know, I, I, I was always happy to do the hours, but it has an impact on your family life. From my experience now, and I talk to a lot of cops, they struggle to get people to do overtime because they're more uh, cognizant of the family time that they should have, work-life balance. Um, and I suppose I was an errant father at times because my kids knew where I was by watching the news and seeing what murders were taking place at that at that time, which was, you know, their formative years. Yeah. But I think there's so many things that the police could do better in order to reduce the amount of mental health within the workplace. I, I couldn't agree more. And it, it, it saddens me because I, I see the climate within the media and I see the, the clamour to criticise uh, the thin blue line, if you like, for anything and everything, any opportunity, there's, a, there's an angle to criticise somewhere in it. Otherwise, 
the media mainstream don't seem to be interested unless there's a criticized angle in it. Uh, and the good news stories, which happen every day, every hour with the blue light, you know, community, they're doing good stuff, brave men and women everywhere. Those stories never seem to get put to the top of the list, the brave men and women. But I will, I will qualify that because I think that the comms strategy with a lot of police forces is so poor that they don't yeah. ring the bell and say, look what my officers have done. Look at the yeah, great work they've done. Look at all the people they've saved this week. Look at all the people they've arrested. Look yeah. at all the great work they've done within the community. They, it becomes mediocre. They just allow it to drift unless, of course, somebody's going for promotion. And then, and then whilst they're going through that promotion period, they will then champion somebody's cause and they'll, you know, they'll be very um, out there with their, their Twitter and everything else, although I think a lot of forces are doing away with individual Twitter accounts. But there's so much more that they could do in order to promote the great work that they are doing. Absolutely. And just to I'll not mention name places or anything like that, but where I started and it was 30 years ago, actually, this year that I started uh, and the place that I started at, I came from Hong Kong police. Yes. So I had a few years experience, although it was totally different what I was doing out there. Uh, and that shift that I worked on had a small, not a rural area, but a sort of semi rural area. Police station had its own cell area. We had two sergeants, operational and custody sergeant. We had about 10 PCs, roughly, I think. Probably seven or eight every shift would be turning out. Three or four double crew cars to patrol an area, which just about worked. Um, now, that, that area, the, the police station in question, obviously no cell area. Uh, one sergeant, if you're lucky, but normally that sergeant now will be from the main city 10 miles down the road covering that area. And a shift of 10 is down to two or three at most. Uh, and that is including night shifts, I find out, where officers are now not routinely sent out in double crew cars at all. Even on nights, they're single crewed and they're covering areas which go into rural uh, neck of the woods where they can be. 10, 15, 20 minutes plus away from the next cop, away from support. Um, and then it, that frightens me, you know, how things have declined and been allowed to decline like that when that is put in the, the, the lens of the lads and lasses dealing with the everyday stuff that you and me know all too well, but the media don't seem to focus on. The, the drip, drip, drip of your, your suicides, your baby deaths, your, your nasty traffic accidents, uh, your hangings, uh, the people jumping from height, et cetera, et cetera. Those staple things that anybody in, in uniform on a, on a beat shift will see week in, week out, the things that you take away in your stress buttons, if you like, take home to your family and those loved ones that, that wonder, you know, why is daddy or mummy grumpy as hell? Why is daddy or mummy coming home smelling of alcohol more and going down the pub, you know? Um, and and th that side of the normality of being a, a, a member of the thin blue line now just seems to be scotched over by everybody, including, like you quite rightly say, Paul, uh, management structures and media techniques and PR sides to the police. That that needs to be explained to people that there's less men and women doing more work, still dealing with these these routinely extremely traumatic incidents that most people. You know, don't understand the gravity of what a, a police officer, man or woman, is seeing on a daily, mm. hourly, almost basis, and that 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 takes that takes hold, and that has consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at the online exposure, child exploitation, yeah. all the stuff that I didn't I didn't yeah. even well, we didn't have computers in in that way. In fact, when I joined, we were typing our charge sheets out. So, but but we 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 didn't have it. So they've got greater exposure. They've, there's more placed onto them. They've got more teams in the Premiership. That's the other thing. So you've they've they've actually, you know, the senior management have created the problem because they've actually thinned out the thin blue line by by making it more bureaucratic in certain areas and less accessible. So, you, you know, they're they're, they're the. Um, they're in charge of their own destiny, the police service, but I do feel for them because I just think that everybody's against them, everybody. And and sometimes, you know what, if they did wrong and put their hands up and said, yeah, you're right, we're really sorry, 
that would that would alleviate a lot of pressures against the police. But quite often there are, there's occasions where they don't do that, and they wait for people to prove that they've done something wrong, which is another significant issue with within policing itself. Absolutely, it's it's easy to criticise because obviously, say I've now come into academia. I've been in academia for a few years, and I was talking to colleagues very recently. The new team built around me. We're all uh, embedded researchers, but but say I as as I've told yourself and your listeners that I come at my journey from a totally different direction. So I come from a background, the police background, why I get on with the veterans so well, where we have to react instantaneously to things that are happening right here, right now. Uh, so therefore, we have no time for a million meetings. And let's talk about talk about having a meeting next month. We have to react instantaneously to something that's happening there and then that invariably will affect people's livelihoods and health and well-being. So we have to react. And when we react like that, we will sometimes get it wrong. Because you've got to react, something you've got to do something. Because doing nothing is not an inst- no. uh, a satisfactory option with with ninety five percent of the things that we deal with in the police force. So, yes, we will get things wrong. You know that's just human nature. Yeah. And and with and with hindsight, that beautiful thing that the press seem to have, with with Mr. Hindsight, Mrs. Hindsight, everything's easily criticisable. A day, a week, a month, a year later. But but they weren't there at two, three o'clock, you know, when that officer, he or she was dealing with that incident and had to make a split level decision, uh, being abused, uh, being verbally, physically abused, etc. Whatever the routine incidents obviously give that man or that woman, that, that brother or that sister. So so this side of it seems to be instantly forgotten about that it isn't an academic background where we can talk about having meetings when you instinctively react to something. You will sometimes get it wrong. But that said, the British Police Service does incredibly well. I almost swore then incredibly well because it gets it right more often than it gets yep. it wrong. You know, you, you look about what, what's been happening in London recently. And yes, there was an element of time to plan that. Not much for them down with the protests. But that's a good example because down in the Met, when they had that weekend across Remembrance, they actually did a very good job. Yeah, they did. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. A, a fantastic job, you know, but how many people acknowledged it? And what level across the media did it get a pat on the back? Hardly at all. Again, no. they were just looking for the negative angle again. Yeah. Uh, so there's just it's just not politically correct or satisfactory to, to praise the police now. And no. that, that, that saddens me. Who'd, who'd have thought? So what next for the uh, foundation, for the, the pairing foundation what's happening next uh good question um see i'm i'm in this new role uh, in in working in the hdrc working at an amazing place in sheffield uh, the advanced well-being research center and i'm working around some amazing people uh very gifted people who are there basically in their roles not to make money they're there to make lives better for people uh, and, and I'm finding lots of new conversations are happening with the people I work with there and with the people I'm working with in the council on this HDRC project in uh, the place where we're working. And what next for Deparian is is develop these conversations, linking with these um, these collaboration uh, ideas, how how we can help not just the veteran community, not just the cop community, but help every community now. So. With me, I'm broadening out what we're doing. I'm making what we do much more inclusive. Anybody who lives with a trauma journey, anybody who is living with uh, the suicide, uh, suicidal thoughts and behaviours, then, then we want to help and we want to group together. So for me, it's, it's developing that next side of how to help anybody who comes from the trauma-suicide background so uh, there are people in 84 countries that listen to this. And if you wanted something or you needed something for the foundation, what, what do you need other than cash? I can't give you cash, but, I can, <laughs> but, what, but what do you need as a, as a foundation? That's a really good question. You, well, this is the, why, why you ask the good questions, because you're good at what you do, Paul. But do you know what? It's, it goes back to those first days when I was at Audley Court, the combat stress place, and that, that lad came up and shook my hand in 
still a good friend of mine and said something rude. But what he what he did is he he said when he in that moment, he said, I see you. I recognize you. I validate you. I see you. Uh, that that That's all we really want. And I want just see us validate us. Um, we're on social media. You know, it's a cottage industry. I do it all myself. We're on Twitter, Instagram, not quite as much, but we're there. So seek us out, follow us, engage with us. We've got a website. Again, it's not the best website in the world. You know, when I've got some time, I'll make it better. But seek us out, follow us, support us, help us build and help us link and network with people. Because I'm finding that the power is in networking. The power is having conversations like we're having now because one conversation leads to another, leads to another, and suddenly you've you've gone in a whole direction none of you would have envisaged possible, and you've come up with some amazing ideas from lived experience again that helps people. And it helps all of us because by helping one brother or sister, we're helping the community. Um, so that's what I'd ask. It's, it's not about money, and even if I, I could have money, it wouldn't be top of my list anyway. Um, we've survived on a shoestring with our foundation um, and that'll continue. It's never been about having the biggest bank balance or the best social media or the best website. It's just been about trying to feel as if we're contributing effectively to things that make people's lives better. Yes, it started off with the veteran in blue light worlds, but now it's it's any community with that common trauma journey. And if we or I can feel that we're helping somebody or some community in any way, then I'll sleep better that that night for sure, you know, and it'll it'll give me some satisfaction that we're here for a purpose and we're just doing some good. Just trying. Maybe, maybe it goes back to that guilt I still live with, if I'm honest. You know, maybe I'm trying to put some some counters in the good side of the 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 spreadsheet you know because i still feel i've got something to owe to life you know and to the scale of things because of what i've done in my past so um, that's probably it just to feel like we're helping paul but you shouldn't and i'm not saying this in a glib way but you shouldn't feel guilty i know it's easy for me yeah. to say because i'm i'm not you and i haven't been there i've been in sticky situations but but if a coroner's court says, do you know what, Rich, you haven't, you know, you're not responsible for this, this has happened. Yes, you've got that memory, and I'm a layman here, but should you have that guilt? Because that guilt isn't something for you to carry. Because some people put themselves in those circumstances, and I'm not, I'm not um, knocking the, you know, the person that's passed away, but sometimes people put themselves in that circumstances and the the problem is often created by others and finished by us. Yeah, absolutely. Guilt guilt is an awful thing. And um, I, I, I was telling you off camera that I went and met a lovely group of uh, people this morning in one of the communities I'm starting to build with, a community that also have a lived experience of trauma and suicide. And we, we got to talking about guilt, actually. And guilt, it's such a a destructive thing but but it's it's something that sort of weaves itself into you and once it's in it's very difficult getting yep. it out it becomes part of your dna guilt along with self-disgust they sort of go hand in hand quite often and when they're there they become part of your skin your flesh and it, it's almost impossible getting rid of them and often and, and this this is corroborated by chats i've had with with lads and lasses that have come from afghan iraq etc with their own guilts you know um, and, and, and we come to a common conclusion that often the, all we can do is just accept it, befriend it, live with it. And it sort of becomes like that friend in the corner of the room and we just put our arm around it and we live with it. Uh, and maybe we try and find other ways of mitigating it. We can't take back what we've done. If we would, yes, we probably would, albeit the circumstances probably of that moment necessitated those things happening, perhaps. So, so what can what can we do? We can just try and make just define the guilt and use the guilt as a driver uh, to to get us up at silly o'clock to carry on doing work when we're tired, you know, to push us through those pain barriers, be they psychologically or physically, because we're doing something good. So it's probably it's probably just become a driver to to keep on going. Good man. Well, look, before we conclude this interview, and it's something I say to everybody, so don't be offended, but is there anything you'd like to add, alter or correct in relation to the conversation that we've had today? 
No, absolutely. It's it's a pleasure talking. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, Paul. It's really appreciated because, as I've said earlier, you know, this is for me is about networking. It's not about being the best in the class or the biggest or the loudest or anything like that. It's just trying to put out there that there's so many good men, women organizations doing so much out there, helping communities that really need help. There's so much more to be done. But this is just an opportunity just to to reach out and just to, to say we're here, I'm here, just want to be a part and work with people. So I hope in the coming weeks, months, I'll be able to tell people, pass through to yourself, some of the the the, the products of what we're doing right now. Yeah. I don't want to talk too much about some of those things because they've still got time to develop, but there's many exciting things happening with the HDRC project I'm on, with the stuff I'm working at Sheffield on. There's some really good stuff, so I hope I can update you with that. But if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can through our social media, through the, through the website, and, and and we'll talk and we'll work and we'll try and make things better for people, Paul. But thank you for the opportunity. Not a problem at all, mate. All your links will be in the body. On the video, I'll make sure that they're, they're shown on the screen uh, so that people can reach out to you. But thank you very much for your time today, sir. Paul, you're doing a cracking job. Thanks, Keep mate. it up, my friend. <laughs>